Good morning, everybody. I'm not going to preach from the Bible today. <laughs> well, I, I plan to, but I don't have a specific text. The reason um, is because there are so many texts that I could use, I don't really know which one to use. So we'll refer to um, a number of scriptures. I want to talk to us today about faith and about unbelief and about the difference. And to do that, I think we have to look at what the scriptures seem to tell us is the fundamental root sin. Now, all sin's not good, but there seems to me to be a root sin that influences all others or prompts all others and can be identified wherever we find sin. We find it at its root. In the Garden of Eden, the devil solicited, did his best to create doubt and unbelief in Eve's heart. There's the first place I think we can look for what is the root sin in the human heart. Knowing that helps us follow salvation. It helps us to understand ourselves. And it helps us see God's remedy for us. What Satan did in the garden marked the whole human race and affected us. That mark is fundamentally, and I would define it this way, it's a spontaneous suspicion of God's character, of his motives for us, of his commandments, of his laws, and so forth. That's the root from which I think every other disobedience to God and that which separates us from God springs. When we then, as a human race, fell, the spontaneous affection for God, I am sure, though the scripture isn't entirely specific, I can't believe that Adam and Eve didn't look for gladly with anticipation for God's visits. He came to them and visited with them apparently daily in the garden. It would have been their greatest part of the day. Not that God wasn't there, fills the whole earth. But he would come and talk with them in the cool of the day. 
there comes the, the best description, unfortunately, we have of that regularity of God's fellowship with them was on the day they ate of the fruit and then hearing God's footsteps and his voice in the garden. For the first time, they reacted entirely differently than their joyful anticipation however long they lived before the fall prompted them to have. This time, they ran, they hid, they feared, and they suddenly had, opposite from the warm, joyful, blessed presence of God that they looked forward to, now they suspected him. They had, they had crossed a boundary where they said they didn't believe him. And Satan's, even the way he worded his appeal to them, did God really say that? Did he really mean that? And Eve let that suggestion take root in her heart and after elevating her judgment which is what unbelief will do elevating her judgment above God's she determined that God wasn't telling the truth this fruit was good this fruit not only would be good for food it would supposedly make her wise. And she finally, the final nail she drove is that God wasn't telling her the truth. He was holding out on her because he said, you'll die if you eat this fruit. And Satan said, no, you won't. In fact, it's good for you. That corruption of her heart like that I believe is the tap root from which all sin comes I don't believe God I suspect his motives that's why we run that's why we flee from God that's why we have all kinds of ideas about what God really has in store for us. And so we, we hide. We are, our whole picture of God is deeply, deeply flawed. And we attribute to God. A.W. Tozer put it this way. He said, we'll attribute to God streaks of sadism that we wouldn't attribute to the worst of men. What God has for us. Listen, you follow God, I'll tell you what, his main thing is to find out what you love the most, take it away from you. His main thing is to find out what you don't want to do and make you do it. I'll tell you, don't trust him. He comes across nice, but he's got, he has ill plans for you and so God, through the Holy Spirit, through his church, through other Christians, 
through grace that fills the earth, has to spend his time wooing us back and getting us to reject our suspicions and almost in a trembling way finally approach him, hoping against hope that maybe he isn't everything we thought he was. I don't know how good of an illustration this is. It comes to my mind. hope it came from God. But when Liz and I first went in the ministry, I was pastoring a little, troubled, historically difficult church in the suburb of Portland, just 10 miles away, 10 minutes away, drive from seminary. And Liz was going to Portland State, and this was a... I guess I would say the neighborhood we lived in was a dump. Um, they specifically des um, designated it in the county planning commission or whoever, a depressed area, okay? And it was depressing. And who would ever put a church there? Well, number of 30, 40 years earlier, Somebody had donated a swampy piece of land, and this is for God. <laughs> Give you, you know, we sang about that. I surrender all. I have this dump piece of land that is swampy, and I can't sell it. It'll give it to the Lord. We want to build a church. You had to hire an Indian guide to find it. Seriously. You couldn't even find it. Well, because it was a poor area, not highly traveled, it became a dumping ground for dogs. Maybe cats, I don't know, I didn't pay attention to the cat. But people would dump dogs off up there, hope someone would adopt them. And there was this one day, this beautiful black and tan, mostly black, big German shepherd was lurking clear out in the street. We were somewhat back from the street. And he was skin and bones and he just, he, he looked well, somebody had dumped him. And there was something about that dog that was pitiful to me. Um, both of us thought, we've got to rescue this dog. All of our thoughts were for his good. But he suspected us. He wouldn't let, the minute we opened the door, he would run. And he was clear out in the middle of the street, far away from us, take off. And we would try to go out with food and he'd take off. So we decided, okay, we'll just, we'll go out and we'll put food clear on the curb. And, well, it didn't even have a curb. That's part of the neighborhood. It's just a mess. Anyway. So we put a bowl of food out there and some water and stood back. He, he, wouldn't, he wouldn't come to it. Finally, we figured out we had to go clear back into the house and close the front door. Then he would just shaking. He would come up and eat a few bites. If we just turned the knob and opened the door, he was gone. I can't remember exactly how long it took us to lure him and basically 
we used his physical hunger, hoping that he would overcome his suspicion of our motives. And eventually we got to where we, he would eat something if we opened the door. And then we moved the bowl back towards the porch. Finally, there came a day we put it on the porch. He let us pet his head. It took us a long time. All the while, even though we didn't really know this dog, we cared for him. We loved him. We had his best, best interests at heart. We wanted, to, we wanted to minister to him. We wanted to take care of his ribs that were showing and his just mangy appearance. All of that, it took for us to overcome his suspicion of us. God has to do the same thing. He feeds us. He clothes us. He blesses us, even when we don't know it. There's a little verse, last verse, a little line in the last verse of an old invitation hymn, which is, we used to sing it, <clears throat> but it is, Lord, I, I come to you just as I am. And the line says, thy love unknown has broken down every barrier. I didn't even know God loved me. I didn't even recognize it. But all this while, he was working to break down barriers. And the biggest barrier is the perversion of our hearts from once looking at God as my friend to my enemy. And suspecting his motives. He's cruel. He's unkind. He's hard. He's cold. He puts you through the mill. He somehow has pleasure. In taking things from you. He doesn't hear you when you pray. In your most desperate hour. You feel. I don't feel God. Like Job, I go forward, I go to the side, I can't find him. Why is he gone? When we need him the most, we think. But he isn't. He isn't. Our enemy and this spontaneous inclination to question him, to doubt him, to second guess him. It runs our life. It, it perverts our entire life until we find our way to Jesus. And finally, by the grace of God, He enables us to break down the barriers and come to Him and see Him for who He is, put our trust in Him, confess our straying from him, our rebellion against him, and cast ourselves on his mercy. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. I'll rest you. I'll assuage your fears, your suspicions of me. Learn of me.
walk with me. You'll see a meek and lowly, kind and good. And I want to make you like that. Now what we discover too, the Bible's absolutely filled with it, is after we come to Jesus, he forgives our sins, he writes our name in heaven, we're a new creature, we're not what we weren't, uh, once were, the outbroken rebellion against God, we have quit, and we love God as much as we can. But there, there, the scripture is filled with illustrations of and events that involve a yet lurking tendency of unbelief. It does not dominate me anymore, but it's still there. It is, and there, there are two kinds of faith. There are two kinds, well, really more than that, depending on parts of speech. But there are a number of different kinds of references to unbelief. Probably we can break them down to two. There's unbelief that is a verb. It's an action. In other words, it involves my will. I choose not to believe God. I won't. That shows up in Scripture in the original language describing sinners, people who are in rebellion against God, who don't know God. There's another kind of unbelief that is in Scripture. And it's a noun. It's not an act. It's a condition. And it is found in what James calls the double-minded. The disciples were afflicted with it. Jesus took Peter, James, and John up to the Mount of Transfiguration, and they saw Moses and Elijah and heard the voice of the Father, this is my beloved Son, and so forth. They came down from that experience to find the rest of the 12 or, and more gathered around a man who had come to the foot of the mountain looking for Jesus. He believed in Jesus. He came bringing a son that he said is demon-possessed, often casts himself, throws himself into the fire, all kinds of issues He's grieving, he's in, he's in desperation. And Jesus shows up, and he goes to him, and he falls on his face before Jesus. And this, this man's a good illustration, and so are the disciples. He said to Jesus, can you do anything? And the response of Jesus is interesting there. When you read it, sometimes it depends on what version. It doesn't make, you don't quite get the sense. But Jesus said back to him, 
we probably have to paraphrase it. He, he says, if I can do anything, in other words, what do you mean if I can do anything? I can do anything. So then he said, do you believe? And the dear soul poured his heart out, acknowledged his heart. He said, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Now, what does that tell us? Among other things, first of all, it tells us that faith at a certain level, a saving level, dwells in a heart, but also unbelief can dwell in the same heart at the same time. That man confessed that. I believe. Help my unbelief. The second thing we can see is that his unbelief was not, not a choice. He didn't want it. Now, before we find God, unbelief is a choice. But when we use the power of our choice, with the grace of God, he draws us and we put our faith in Jesus, we have an active faith by choice. I choose to believe God. As a result, I'm born again. But I still discover I'm not aware of it until it is discovered to me. This man recognized I have true faith in Jesus. But I still have unbelief that is beyond my control to get rid of. I, I can't stop it. He went ahead in the next sentence and he told Jesus, he said, I brought my son to your disciples and they couldn't cast it out, cast the demon out. Later, after Jesus healed him, the disciples then, when they withdrew, they said to him, Lord, that's significant, Lord. He was their Lord. They acknowledged it. They said, why couldn't we cast that out of him? Now, here's Jesus, the heart-knowing God. He doesn't make mistakes. Were these disciples believers? Absolutely they were. Jesus said they were. He said, they have believed me. They've received me and my word. They said, why couldn't we cast out that demon? Jesus said, because of your unbelief. Again, not a choice. I don't know what all they did, but they prayed some kind of a storm while Jesus was still on the mountaintop to try to cast this demon out of this boy. And they couldn't do it. They weren't making a choice not to believe God. They were stymied by a streak, a remaining sense of unbelief that hindered them. And so Jesus identified it for him. He says, because you still have unbelief in your heart. And there, it's, it's the non-choice kind of unbelief. Unbelief, then, 
Unbelief will produce, and there's some argument in theology, it's not a bad argument, but it's trying to figure out what's, what is the root sin. Some people say it's rebellion. Some people say it's self-centeredness. Some people say it's pride. They're all a tangled mess. But to me, unbelief makes the clearest sense of what is the tap root that God wants to get out of our hearts. Jesus summed up the whole office of the Holy Spirit. And he said, when he, when I leave, and he comes into the world, he will convince, convict the world of sin, of righteousness, of judgment. Of sin, what? Well, because they smoke dope. No. Because they kill, they didn't know. Of sin, because they do not believe. They do not believe in me. Those are just a couple of scriptures that convince me the basic core, the taproot of sin is unbelief. I suspect God's motives, and I don't even do it many times willfully or even knowing it. We discover when the disciples came to Jesus after that case at the foot of the Mount of Transfiguration, if we take them at face value, in which I think we have to, they were stumped. They didn't even know. Why couldn't we triumph here in this battle we had? Why were we defeated? It took Jesus to point out to them. It's because your unbelief that still remains. That, now, now, how does that act? How does that function or reveal itself in the heart of carnal Christians? It isn't, I hate God. I won't believe him. I'm not going to listen to him at all. We find it's not a choice. It's an obstacle that we struggle with. And we can't quite ever seem to overcome it. And it, we discover it. The disciples, I believe, were completely clueless. Completely clueless. Even up until the eve of the crucifixion. And Jesus said, let me tell you more than I've told you before, or at least tell you again that you might grasp it. I'm going to be crucified. We're going on our way to Jerusalem. They're going to crucify me. And I will be raised again the third day. They completely missed that, understandably. And Peter, being the talker of the group grabs Jesus' lapels and he says, this can't be to you. Peter wasn't being hateful, wicked. I don't even think he recognized it. In fact, I can only imagine the shock on his face when Jesus labeled him. He said, get behind me, Satan. Now, he wasn't saying you're the devil. The word there is adversary. 
you have become an adversary to me. You and I are not on the same wavelength. We're not on the same page. And then he said, why? Because he said, you love, the King James will put it, savor, you taste, you, you're into, he said, the things that are of men, not the things that are of God. There is a sense then, that's what Paul meant to the Corinthians. You're still carnal. Carnal means fleshly, earthly. You're, uh, you're preoccupied with the things of this world, the values of this world, rather than the things that are of God. And it's involuntary. I want to make that clear. It's not a choice. Sinners make choices to rebel against God. Peter, I am certain, the Corinthians had to be awakened. James explained. He said, where do your bickerings and your fightings come from? They weren't, they didn't know. He had to discover it to them. Once it's discovered to me, then what God wants to do is in a simple act of faith, doing exactly what, exactly what the last song we sang here on Hymn Sunday tells us. I surrender all. I give myself to thee. Now what impedes us from giving ourselves completely to God? Why would any person who has experienced walking with God, why would we hesitate in Lord, you do what you want with me. Do what you want. Thy will be done. Period. Why is there a hesitancy there? Because there remains an involuntary sense in my heart of suspicion. When I, in, when I was in Bible college, of course, everybody's always, everybody there was going in some kind of ministry. And everybody had worries. I hope, I want to do this for ministry. I, oh, I sure hope God doesn't call me to do that. Liz got saved in California, it was just way out there. Um, you know, as far as just a strumming her guitar in the park, hippie. She gets saved, soundly saved, and within w w weeks, heads off to this Bible college back in Iowa. Her church that she had some connection with pushed kids to go to that school and I ended up showing up there the next semester 
But here was her, she said, I told God with all my heart, I meant it. She said, Lord, you can have my life. I'll go wherever you want me to go. I'll do what you want me to do. I'll be a missionary. I don't care. Lord, whatever you tell me to do, I'll do it. Except I don't want to marry a pastor. She told him that. That's not I surrender all. You understand what I mean? Was she wicked and black hearted? No. But she had a little reserve. I'll do anything you want, Lord, except that. That he, he, he won't put up with that. He says, no. You give entirely everything. You give it to me. Listen, that's the greatest way to live with no reserves. No, then, yes, as humans, we fret, we worry. Man, Lord, I don't want to, I hope this doesn't happen. I hope my kids all, you know, turn out good. I hope this, I hope, but often things don't go our way. That tests whether back here we said, Lord, I'll do anything. I'm yours. I'm not my own. I'm yours. Unbelief will prevent you from doing that because it suspects God will find out what you don't want to do and make you do it. It has that notion about it. But he isn't like that. question I just want to put before you today is, First of all, will you just let the Lord, and he's, in some ways God's in a hurry, in other ways he's not. I think sometimes as humans, even, you know, Christians in the ministry, we, we try to plant seed before it's been plowed real good. We get in a hurry. We're Americans. God took 20 years he took 20 years to get Jacob to finally say, Lord, this is what my heart is. My name's Jacob, crook, deceiver. <laughs> took him 20 years. Now, in our evangelism programs, we're not putting up with that. I mean, you, you, you hear two or three sermons, you read a couple of tracts, you sign, get with it here. And you're saved. God takes time. I hate to get this old before I figure that out. Often I've felt, oh, listen, I preached on you know, getting right with God three times, and this person's been there. Why in the world aren't? Listen, God, yes, he's in a hurry, but he knows how much time he's got, and he just talks to us. So without, you know, some frenzied hurry, would we just say, Lord, search my heart. Show me if there is any lurking unbelief that hinders me from fully trusting you, fully giving myself to you, accepting whatever you bring into my path. I don't know, but I know you do. There's a place of, there's an old hymn, there is a place of, Quiet rest near to the heart of God.
best place to live. And it can only be done when I say, I give you everything. So pray that God will just reveal your heart, help you get to that point. It's the best place to live. Let's bow our heads. And I think we will just, without singing today, I think we will just have a moment of silence with our heads bowed, hearts open before God, letting him just show you whatever he wants to say to you. And then we'll close with prayer. Lord, this morning, you see those lies and suspicions we have of you in our hearts this morning. Lord, I trust that you in these moments have been revealing to us the ways in which we have held out suspicions of you, ways we have doubted your goodness. And Lord, I trust that you see the events of our lives where we picked up those lies, where we picked up those suspicions. So now for every soul in this room who likely has those at the forefront of their mind, I pray that you would in this moment shed your light upon them. Show those lies for what they are to our hearts this morning, Lord. Help us to see your goodness this morning, Lord. Help us to dispel in our hearts and in our minds those lies that we've heard and held on to and grown to believe. Lord, shed your light on it. Lord, you are so good and we are grateful that you have proven your power and proven your might in this world, overcoming sin and death and the grave. And Lord, we believe this morning that you can help us to overcome those lies and unbeliefs as well. So for those of us who have seen now your lies that you don't want us to hold on to and the truth that you want to put in place, Lord, I pray that you would do that by your Holy Spirit right now. Lord, and by your Spirit, help us to have pure hearts. We seek after pure hearts. We want to have pure hearts so that we can experience your goodness like Adam and Eve did in the garden. No suspicions, no worries, no fear. Lord, I pray that you grow in us the trust that we can experience that once again here during this life, Lord. So help us, Lord. Give us your spirit. Help us to see your truth and your goodness and your beauty and the good that you have held out to us. You are good to us. 
Help us see it, Lord. Help us see. Lord, I thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for its truth. Thank you that it is a light for us. And it helps us see your true nature, not the one that we may have come to know or think we know. Lord, it gives us our true picture of what you're like. We thank you for that this morning. Pray for the souls in this room who have seen in a new way your character this morning. Help us to go out from this place new because of that. New because we see your goodness and not the suspicion of you. Lord, we pray this asking uh, it all in Jesus' name. Amen.